0: It's now mainly a golf podcast. Like we've decided that, right?
1: Hey there. Welcome to Hot Takedown, the show where the hot takes of the sports world meet the numbers that prove them right or tear them down. Today is June 16th, 2020. And I'm Sarah Ziegler, the sports editor at 538. Joining me in New York City is senior sports writer Neil Payne. Hi, Neil.
2: Hey, Sarah. How are you? Good
1: somewhere in New York City somewhere.
2: Undisclosed.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: In your bunker. (laughs) And from Los Angeles is 538 contributor Jeff Foster. Hey, Jeff.
0: Good morning, Sarah. How are you?
1: (laughs) Good. How's it going?
0: Great. Everything's perfect. The world's great.
1: (laughs) Golf is back. So everything's wonderful. Is that? It is.
0: It is. Well, no, everything's horrible. Golf (laughs) is back. Neil, I don't know if you were watching, but it was two back to back on the same hole. Very short putts that you know decided the tournament that were missed. But
2: wow, yeah, this is like wasn't it Ben Hogan that said that putting should just be banned from golf that it's not really a part of golf. You know, we're 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 out here hitting long shots with a tremendous amount of skill, and then tournaments are won or lost based on uh, you know whether or not you can use a radically different club to roll the ball into the hole. Seems like BS to me.
1: <laughs> putting putting is BS. You are absolutely right. Although on any given day, all of golf is pretty terrible for me. Um, but hey, guys, let's settle in for this golf because we're not getting baseball back anytime soon. Yeah, I mean Wrong. this is God. now
0: this is now mainly a golf podcast. Yeah, like we've decided right. that right. Like that, uh, it's been a slow transition based <laughs> mainly on my interests. Um, but now
2: with baseball gone, I mean, guys. It'll be golf, soccer, and motor sports.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's and that's like, the whole show. I mean, a week ago, remember, Rob Manfred said he was 100% certain there would be baseball. And then now yesterday, he's like, oh, wait, no, I'm not 100%. Well,
2: he is 100% a clown. <laughs> wow.
1: <laughs> wow, starting off hot, y'all. Sorry,
2: someone well, had to say it. No, I'm all for it. I love it. I
1: just want to, you know, we're going to talk more about it is difficult to get season to get these leagues started again. We're going to talk a lot about that today. But I did think it was telling that yesterday the WNBA plan was approved by their players. They're going to play 22 games. They were going to play 36 they're gonna get paid for all thirty six games.
2: Yeah, they're gonna get paid more than a hundred percent of their per game salary.
1: I understand the scales are not the same between the WNBA and baseball, but it is possible to do this in a way that like lifts up your players and and values them and doesn't crap all over them. Just saying, whatever. Baseball. And you know what? The
2: WNBA is gonna probably have like a huge spike in interest and you know, excitement because of this.
1: Yeah, you would think so.
2: You know, baseball, they had their chance to be at the center of the sports stage, and uh, they've completely blown it. Great work.
1: Yeah, given that they know they have an interest problem, a declining interest problem, seems like not a great strategy to piss off the fans you do have when you know you need to gain more fans.
0: But do you really think sports, I I mean, I agree with you, but do you really think sports fans will hold a grudge like for that long, like a full year and being like, I'm never coming back? Remember last year when they didn't want to play in the global pandemic?
2: (laughs) Um, Well, it's probably there's some element of out of sight, out of mind, right? Where it's like if you just stop following it because it doesn't exist and everything else does exist you sort of, it falls down the pecking order.
1: I mean, I think that's the problem, right? I am obviously going to watch baseball again because I'm a baseball fan. Like I, even if I grumble about it, I'm going to come back. And we've seen that through history. We just had a piece on this actually, that even after the 94, 95 strike, when people were like, this is it, I'm walking away from baseball forever. Attendance was back up. But I do think there's a real problem for gaining new fans in baseball. And that's what baseball really needs to be worried about. You know, priorities. On today's show, we'll discuss the group of players led by Brooklyn Nets star Kyrie Irving who aren't so sure about a return to basketball in July and what impact they might have on the league. We'll also preview the return of Premier League soccer and what there is to look forward to other than Liverpool winning the title. And finally, in our rabbit hole, we'll be joined by poker pro Maria Konnikova to talk about her new book. Just when we thought the NBA had settled on a plan for a return, some players are saying not so fast. On a conference call of about 80 players on Friday, Nets point guard Kyrie Irving, who is also the Players Association vice president, raised concerns about whether NBA games would take away from the attention in our culture right now on social justice issues. He is reported to have said, I don't support going into Orlando. I'm not with the systemic racism and the bullshit. Something smells a little fishy. Some players like Dwight Howard and some former players like Steven Jackson, have been supportive of Kyrie's stance and also want to pump the brakes on the NBA's restart. But there's also been some pushback. Former NBA player Kendrick Perkins had this to say about Kyrie on ESPN's Golick and and Wingo.
3: Now what changed over the last nine, ten days? What changed was, for what I strongly believe and what I heard is that the NBA the NBA and the Players Association, so, Kyrie, that no, you can't go because we're only we're limited on the number of people that we could take, and the inactive players knowing that you're not going to play is is although it's a great idea, it just wouldn't be the smartest thing to do, and all of a sudden now you're ruffling the feathers and causing not only friction in the world. But you causing friction between the NBA brotherhood because now when guys do get back to playing, you're going to have certain people saying, oh, man, they wrong for that. It's bigger than basketball. When people wasn't saying that at first. And at the end of the day, between being powerful and popular. Kyrie is a popular guy, but he's not a powerful guy. He's not moving the needle where the NBA is going to say, Oh, now we go cancel the season because Kyrie got 80 guys on the call. That's not happening It's just not happening. I'm sorry
1: there's a lot to unpack here, but I guess let's start with this. Will the NBA season be delayed or canceled because of the desire of some players to address social justice issues or or the hesitation of other players over the coronavirus? Neil, what do you think?
2: My prediction is that no, it won't uh, derail the return just because I think that you know the players have too much to lose financially, especially there will be long-term implications if they don't show up. It'll tear up the collective bargaining agreement uh, and sort of have this ripple effect that goes out over the course of years. So I think it would take more than just the 80 players, even if all of them decided to sit out, uh, to to kind of derail it. And I think also... You know, it's important to note that one of the players that was not in that group, um, uh, questioning the return was LeBron James, who's the most powerful and influential player in, in the NBA uh, right now. And uh, he seems to think, which I believe will be the prevailing opinion eventually, that they can actually do more to advance Black Lives Matter and, and, you know, the fight against social injustice if they use the playoffs as kind of a gigantic megaphone rather than, you know, sort of shut it down and not have that stage to themselves.
1: Yeah. Jeff, what do you think about whether the season will be delayed or canceled? I I mean,
0: there's so many factors at play here. And I I generally agree with uh, what Neil just said. What Kyrie is doing is, you know, he's he's keeping the conversation going and it's an important one. And it's obviously an important issue to these players. And I think I understand his point that, you know, the optics of of a predominantly black league playing in quarantine and, and putting themselves at personal risk um, for the sake of owners and financial interests who are not taking on any such risks, you know, the optics aren't great considering everything that's going on. But I think there's, you know, it's hard to give a a very clear answer because, you know, the other factor which is enormous is what's going on with COVID still and what's going on in Florida, where cases are surging. and. To some extent, the data, even on Florida, because of because of their governor, DeSantis, is a little unclear to the extent of the the, the problem there and, and, and how serious risks they are taking. And also, you know, other factors like, you know, Disney itself and the rules for quarantine and how many people will they be coming in contact with and family members. And I think there's just a lot of things that, you know, as they're hashing out the details, are becoming just very important x factors. so while i do you know overall agree that i think they will play and i think what neil said about lebron and a couple other key star players you know who really um can can sway a, a large block of players to agree to go on to this and we've already seen this because they voted for it but it is a to think for a while that everything was going to be easy and smooth and we're going to have this crazy new system and you know in a in a bubble in Orlando, um, it's obviously not gonna be that simple.
1: Which shouldn't have really been that surprising, right? There are a lot of people involved with this having some, you know, dissenting opinions actually is not that that surprising. Um in his take, Perkins argued about or talked about Kyrie being popular but not powerful and maybe having ulterior motives for his stance. So Kyrie had said on June 5th that he might join his teammates in Orlando, but that he wouldn't be an active player. And that was the same day that the Players Association leadership, of which Kyrie is a part, voted in favor of the plan to begin with. But, you know, also a lot happened during that week, both within the NBA and across the country. Neil, what do you think is going on here with Kyrie?
2: Well, I don't know about any kind of ulterior motive. I mean, we know Kyrie is injured and out for the season so he wouldn't really factor into the nets chances um you know either way but at the same time i mean he has shown himself in the past to be a guy that you know is is more of a free thinker than uh, you know to put it euphemistically possibly uh that, than a lot of other players and sort of you know wants to kind of think outside the the box and question narratives and things like that so i'm not surprised that it would be him that would be sort of leading the forefront on this. Not that I think, you know, he says he smelled something fishy. I don't think that there is any kind of grand conspiracy to keep players away from, you know, joining protests or anything like that. I mean, the plans for this bubble were were set into motion months ago. They've been talking about trying to kind of work it out and figure out the best way. And it seems like everything Adam Silver has done, and, and you know, the players generally tend to give him the benefit of the doubt too, has been to try to maximize player safety and, and while still obviously pulling off this kind of ambitious plan to, to bring the league back. Uh, but, you know, the, putting them in a bubble is designed to keep them from coming into contact with people that have COVID-19. You know, it's, I don't, I don't think it's designed to kind of shut people out from being able to participate in protests. Now that is a side effect to the extent, you know, we have seen some active players and certainly former players like Steven Jackson, you know, appear at rallies and, and kind of, you know, lead, uh lead protests in, in different cities. And they clearly would not be able to do that if they were in the bubble. Um, but then at the same time, you know, I fully expect that the league uh, of all the leagues, the NBA would be the one that would be most open to giving the players space before games, during games, like in the way the games are even packaged and presented to give give a voice to Black Lives Matter in a way that, you know, obviously where remains to be seen from the NFL and is just non-existent in a lot of these other leagues.
1: Yeah, I mean, I do think there's something, you know, Kyrie is an interesting character because he does have sort of a Uh, diva reputation and so i think he's been an easy target of ire for people who just want basketball to start maybe
2: yeah there was a lot of jokes about this was the first time that he had effectively led a group of players into (laughs) into deep june or whatever
1: (laughs) right (laughs) there on the other side of that i sort of i think it's interesting that he might be like he's the face of this and is allowing other players, younger players, maybe players who don't have quite the, the status in the league to say, Hey, I'm worried about this. And this affects me. And there's something about that, that I think is very cool that Kyrie is, you know, making space for these other players to have these concerns and sort of taking the criticism um, on himself. And maybe that's intentional. Maybe it's not, I don't know, but there's something kind of interesting about that too. I do also want to talk about just the tone of the coverage around this whole thing. It seemed to me like there were a bunch of sports writers out there who were like personally offended by the idea that maybe players don't want to do this, this bubble, that they don't want to go back. People were calling Kyrie a disruptor. That was a Woj tweet. Um, I saw people calling him selfish. they are obviously ulterior motives within the people who cover sports for a living. If you cover the NBA, you want it back. That's how you make your career. That's how you make your money. How does that fit into this conversation, Jeff? What do sports writers owe to the people that they're covering?
0: Look, I think there's always going to (laughs) be some sports writers out there that they, the sports writers in my experience have a a bad habit of, of going to the old playbook of like treating this Like, it's any other, you know, issue, off-court issue. Oh, Kyrie, and here's my point, and he's heard, and this. And, like, I think there needs to be a a sort of more of a breath here where people listen and, and know that just hear out what he's saying. Um, and, and understand where he's coming from, because this is a complicated issue and there is no precedent. We have, we have never dealt with this. We've never dealt with a, what's going on with this, this movement and black lives matter to this degree, obviously, you know, Ferguson a few years ago, it, 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 was big. It was a big issue, but this feels different in terms of like the national importance that it's taking right now. And then also on top of that, the pandemic where it's a complete unknown entity, and we've never had to deal with this. We've never deal with this. So I, I think a lot of times you'll see sports writers just go to the sort of old playbook of, you know, I'm going to take this counterintuitive point, or I'm going to do this, and I think it'll get you in trouble. But that being said, you know, well, obviously you know there's always going to be sort of bad opinions out there, I, I do think there are a lot of writers out there, um, and also you know bloggers, podcasters, people in the NBA um, media that ha- have been covering this pretty well too um i think you know yeah the industry tends to you know like all industries get the public opinion is shaped by the the outliers so i I do think that um it hasn't all been nonsense
2: but it is true yeah that you know um we all kind of have a vested interest in the NBA coming back and whether you kind of admit it openly or not, that's a bias we're biased toward the NBA coming back. And if it takes players, you know, not um, making a scene out of uh, you know, the ability to protest or or kind of making this go more smoothly, I think uh, we're all kind of biased toward making that happen. And so, yeah, I don't understand the complaint that Kyrie is being selfish. Also, like you said, Sarah, Sarah, he's actually putting himself in uh, almost as like a shield in front of a lot of other players who kind of feel the same way, but maybe don't have the same level of status or money. I don't think this is him being selfish. I think this is him thinking about the situation maybe in a way that makes people uncomfortable, which is also sort of his, his brand.
1: Right. Yeah.
0: Yeah. But then there's other, there's other NBA players who've said, you know, we don't make Kyrie money and you know, maybe we don't have the luxury to, take that stance because we need these paychecks. So, you know, I think that needs to be considered too.
2: But isn't this why, I mean, this is part of why what they're protesting for, you know, if you look beyond the police violence aspect of it, it's about the fact that, the black community has been affected disproportionately by the coronavirus. And one of the big reasons why is that a lot of them are sort of essential workers or have had to go in and and they don't have the luxury of working from home. Uh, and And that has kind of exposed them in the day to day just to make a living to a higher risk of the virus. That's playing out also in terms of players that can't afford to you know, sit out the rest of the season, and they have to go into this bubble, play, be around other players, or uh, you know, a million other workers that might introduce it into the bubble. That's putting yourself at risk. You can't play basketball from home either. So, in a in a weird way, it's almost like a microcosm of a big part of what's even being kind of protested about.
1: Yeah, and again, you just as in you know the real world. There are lots of different opinions on that within the basketball community, too. I'm sure there are some players who think I am young. I am healthy. I'm, you know, in much better shape than most of the world. All true. Yeah. And I'm probably going to be fine here. And then I'm sure there are other players who think I do not want to risk this. My family's there, too. Like, I don't want this isn't worth it. I mean, and these are the questions we're all facing. Right. What is what is worth it to us? do we have the kind of privilege that allows us to make those decisions too? And that's all wrapped up then in these protests, which, I mean, talk about an intersectional moment in our time. Like there's so many different issues that affect us all in such different ways. I mean, I've, I've realized as I was thinking about how sports writers were reacting to this, I sort of had to stop and say again, like, Yes, I want the NBA back. I do. I want I want sports to talk about. That doesn't mean that I can't talk about other things going on too, but I do, I I love sports. But maybe that's not maybe this isn't the time for that. Maybe this isn't the time for sports to come back. And I should let go of that desire for that kind of normalcy and be (laughs) sit in the uncomfortableness of things not being normal and take this opportunity to you know, participate in what's going on. I mean, we talked about it before on the podcast that it's possible that the lack of sports right now did make it more, make more of a space for everyone to talk about what happened in Minneapolis and and to talk about how policing works. That, that's not a conversation we are typically all having together. And there are other conditions here that are making it possible for us to have that conversation.
0: Well, I think you're right. We, the, the lack of sports has opened up the discourse and or kept things in the national conversation for longer than it may have in a normal news cycle. I think these players they can make more of an impact. We brought it we mentioned at the top of the show by, by getting a, a bullhorn and, and, and getting their 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 platform to to show what they do and make statements there and that will only you know keep it in the conversation going longer. seeing seeing it is one thing. Um, you know, which might be more powerful than reading a, a tweet or an Instagram post or something like that.
1: Well, I think that's a good point. So if the league were to go ahead, what could players do or what could the league do to continue the kind of activism and like active participation that we've seen from players over the past couple of weeks?
2: Yeah, well, I think, you know, there's a lot of different ways that you can do it that involve, you know, kneeling during the national anthem, but also, you know having a moment of silence i don't know maybe 8 minutes and 46 seconds of silence before every game i don't uh, i don't know how it would work but i mean there are definitely ways that you can kind of frame the coverage around sort of keeping the protest in the center of the conversation i think the nba is a league that is conscious of and committed to making space to keep you know the protest message front and center for the rest of these extraordinary playoffs. And maybe that could be written into some of the, um, you know, the contracts or the agreements for a condition to return is giving the players space to do whatever kind of, you know, demonstration they want to before every game.
1: I think there's lots of messaging there. I, I, so in the golf tournament this weekend, um during during the broadcast CBS had was running these like 60 second ads with prominent black athletes and analysts talking about their um experience with dealing with racism and i found them very very compelling and very like and moving and they were you know a minute long but there were you know every break there was some there was one of these and i thought that was really interesting because they're are we think we kind of think that everyone is all thinking about the same things right now but that's not necessarily true and i thought that was smart for the network to like still be reaching people who were watching that sporting event that there are still opportunities to teach people for those kind of teaching moments to still be there um i thought was smart and i think that's something that the nba and its broadcast partners could do too
2: yeah i think that that seems to be sort of the the point being made by the faction that lebron is a part of which is we can do more good and spread the message to a wider audience if we do play than by not playing but certainly not playing will grab people's attention you know i mean that's the the counter argument we can't go back to normal until this problem is addressed whereas maybe the temptation would be once the games start to kind of slide back into business as usual
1: yeah You know, we we don't know, obviously, how this will play out. I think, though, that um, having this conversation is a good one. And I didn't realize before um, this came up last week that this was a conversation that we still needed to have. So that was another way I think it, like, grabbed, grabbed me and made me think again about what my position is on all of this. Okay, I think we can leave this here for now. Let's take a quick break and then we'll skip across the pond and talk about soccer. Tomorrow sees the return of England's Premier League, with second-place Manchester City playing ninth-place Arsenal after just about 100 days of stoppage time. So we thought we would take some time to preview some of the things that are still left to play for, namely spots in the Champions League and the relegation battle at the bottom of the table, since Liverpool could clinch the title as early as this weekend if things play out right. Regardless of how these battles shake out, even fans who aren't optimistic about their team's chances are excited to have the league back. As evidenced by this answer, Raj Bennett gave to a fan wondering what to do when, even though soccer is back, Arsenal inevitably loses 4-1 tomorrow.
4: Gotta tell you, 100 days without the Premier League, so many of those being dark, dark realities in which... Honestly, I didn't think the season would come back no how, no way. Too many barriers, challenges, threats, coronavirus, why, oh why, oh why? And in that time, Patrick, I've come to realise exactly the contours of the role that football plays in my life. It's massive. It makes me feel alive. Yes, it connects me to a roiling global conversation, connects me to so many thousands of different people who are... uh, Different to me in so many ways, but we share a love of the game. And I love that conversation about the soap opera storylines, the feelings, the feelings of humanity. And I'll say this, as an Everton fan to an Arsenal fan, so from one human who knows hope and its conjoined twin, false hope, who knows shattered self-destruction and folly, you know, game-recognised game, I'll say this, I would bite your hand off. To have a rigi break my heart in the Merseyside derby right now. You know, so much of our life of old that we took for granted, like the artfulness of a Socrates own goal. Let's you and me, Patrick from Waco, make a pact. We will never take them for granted again. Indeed, one of the things I've thought about this weekend is that this lockdown experience has been a life of trauma for so many people, for so many terrible reasons. Terrible reasons, but it's also taught us incredible lessons in terms of tenacity, resilience and perseverance to a new era of tenacity, resilience and perseverance within our football fandom. Do your worst, Jordan Pickford. You too, David Louise.
1: So this is a weird year for the Premier League, even before the pandemic. Liverpool had absolutely run away with the title, and the second-place team, Manchester City, had been disqualified from playing in European competitions for the next two years. So there is a legitimate race for spots in the Champions League. Jeff, who's competitive in that race?
0: Yeah, it's a weird year, um, even... Taking the break aside and all that and and the actual dominance because of what's going on with Manchester City um, right now being banned from the Champions League. But having that possibly be overturned is a sort of complicating factor. So we won't really know, I, th- I believe, until like late July or mid-July when what will happen with Manchester City. But that obviously has ramifications down the line because as normal protocol the top four will make the champions league but if manchester city who is while not quite liverpool is pretty much obviously a lock to get one of those spots can't take their spot then it goes to the fifth place and then all of a sudden we're looking at almost a dozen teams that are in the hunt for for that last spot especially if that um fifth spot is in play even if um it it does come down to just the top four, including Manchester City. There's still a lot of teams at play. Chelsea obviously has the fourth spot right now. Leicester City in the third spot looks pretty safe. But then after that, there's a whole traffic jam of teams. Uh, Manchester City, Manchester United, excuse me. The Wolves, Sheffield in their first year up. Spurs, Arsenal even, even Arsenal is, is still a factor.
2: Our, yeah, our model thinks combined, there's basically a 50% chance that either Wolves, Sheffield United, Tottenham, Arsenal, or Everton makes that last spot because, like you said, Jeff Lester has it pretty much locked up. But Chelsea and Man United are not locks by any means to get those last few. And then, you know, who knows, like, how will that work when, when the ruling comes down about city like well uh will there uh, could there conceivably be a team that's like yeah we we got that last spot and it's like no sorry (laughs) yeah you're actually in fifth place like how messed up would that be i don't think any team's gonna feel safe especially you know united
0: is not gonna feel comfortable in that fifth spot i think they have to have to keep pushing for that fourth spot because there'll still be games to play when when we get that ruling
1: yeah, I mean, the next season of, of European play is pretty soon here. So, yeah, all of this is going to be up in the air, maybe still, when the final games of this season are being played. There's also a race at the bottom of the league table to avoid relegation to the second tier division, the English Championship. Neil, which teams are in danger there?
2: Well, so Norwich is uh, pretty much going to be relegated. We give them a 95% chance of that happening. They're at 21 points, so four below anyone else. But then it gets interesting with Aston Villa, Bournemouth, West Ham, Watford, Brighton. All of those teams have at least a 19% chance of being relegated, and obviously only three uh, in total, but two in addition to Norwich could be relegated. So, yeah, this is like as kind of bitter a battle at the bottom as, as you see at the top uh, in a lot of ways, which I think is a little bit different than usual. I mean, uh, you know, normally in a, in a, ordinary season there might be not just one team that is like clearly going to be relegated but at least two it seems like most years but here there's like some ambiguity over who's below basically uh Southampton and Newcastle and the other thing is they have wildly different strengths of schedule remaining where you know Aston Villa has uh I believe the uh, toughest remaining schedule, if you look at the uh, soccer power index of their opponents going forward, uh, whereas Watford actually has a pretty easy schedule. Like the the pause happened at a point in which there were an uneven number of games, uneven strength of schedule down the remainder of the season is also playing into the odds being a little bit spread out.
1: Jeff, what happened to West Ham?
0: I mean, they're they're by far the most interesting team in play here for relegation. Being a London team, being a team that's like spent a lot of money in the past, has had star power um, come in and and fail mainly. <laughs> this is not to mention all the stuff they've had going on in recent years with their stadium and all that. But they've been up for a while, and and I know. At least three or four people personally who would be absolutely devastated if that were (laughs) and humiliated if that were to happen.
1: Nice. Um, Well, speaking of other parts of London, one thing that's interesting about how the Premier League wraps up. And not only because certain hosts of this podcast are Spurs fans and certain sound engineers of this podcast love Arsenal, is that you have two huge teams who are rivals in London who might both get shut out of European football next year. Neil, how important is it for Tottenham and Arsenal to make the cut?
2: Well, I mean, it's important from a pride perspective, obviously, and a bragging rights perspective, which I think you and Tony can can speak <laughs> to uh, in, in that regard. It's also really important from a money perspective. I mean, when you think about when Spurs made the Champions League final, I believe they made 85 million euros uh, from that. And even if you don't make it all the way to the final, if you make it to the group stage, you get 15 million euros. So, I mean, it, it really does make a big difference to these clubs, especially the ones that are part of the you know the top group that like to be able to spend you know freely and and be able to kind of make a big splash every year in the transfer market. So uh, I think that's really kind of the biggest thing on the line. And it would be really weird to see both of these teams not at least one of them not make you know uh, in in the Champions League. So I think it's a, it's a weird year for that reason too. In addition to all the other weird things happening.
1: I mean, it wouldn't be that weird to see Arsenal not make Champions League. They didn't make it last <laughs> year either. <laughs> I mean, look, I want Tottenham to make Champions League. Obviously, I want them to play in a European competition. But the the you know, the one thing I maybe want more is for Spurs to finish ahead of Arsenal on the table. I can't I can't handle that certain Arsenal fan near and dear to this podcast, having that to lord over me, I just, I can't handle it.
0: One interesting factor here is the uh, subs rule, which will be different going forward. And each team will be allowed to make five subs, um, which is a new rule um, in the new world order of COVID. And that actually could end up being a huge factor because if you look at these very wealthy teams, you know, the teams that are traditionally in the Champions League and, you know, the FA Cup, and they have such deep rosters where often their benches are, you know, would be the components of a very good starting team, whereas, you know, some of these other clubs that are, you know, obviously don't have as much money and as much depth, um, you know, will be at a disadvantage. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out
1: the subs thing is really interesting the bundesliga has had has been playing with five subs available now since they've got back a month ago and we looked at that how they were approaching subs differently because there's long been talk in the soccer analytics community that like teams don't use their substitutions, right? They should be subbing earlier, bringing on those fresh legs earlier. Um, And so we looked at that and in the Bundesliga, even though they have the two extra subs at their disposal, they're still not really doing that much different. (laughs) That was really funny. These coaches (laughs) are just so like, they're going to stick to what they know, (laughs) even when they have the opportunities. So maybe there might be, you know, some analytics forward, clubs in premier league could take advantage of that. Maybe you'd I mean it's at their disposal. They should, right.
2: Yeah. Are we going to see like the opener strategy, yes. <laughs> the Tampa Bay raise of the EPL
1: <laughs> or at least making more changes at, at the half. I think the rule is that you, there's still only, you can still only make three, at, you can only make subs at three times, but you can sub more than one player at two of those times. So it's like a little bit weird still, but Still. You could also
0: roster more players too, right? So yeah, there's more options.
1: Yeah. So, what are you guys most looking forward to seeing, or what? What would be the most entertaining way for the Premier League to end?
2: I don't think it's exciting at all that Liverpool will win because they are so far ahead and had been, you know, for the whole season. But at the same time, I think it's great that they're going to get a chance to actually be able to do that officially because that was not a a done deal by any means that there were a lot of people agitating for the season to just be declared incomplete, which would have been just an absurdity for a team that was up as big as Liverpool uh, about whom there was no doubt as to whether they were going to win the league be denied that. So I think this is justice served to, to give them a chance to actually kind of play out the string.
0: I will just say that I am definitely rooting for Sheffield United Talk about an underdog. They, they like uh, Villa, has an extra game in hand and are, are, are in the hunt. And this is their first year up after getting uh, promoted this season from the championship. So obviously, I think uh, in the spirit of Davids, rooting for Davids over Goliaths, I, I have to go with them.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, the disruption at the top of the the big six, I mean, obviously not complete disruption because Liverpool is, is ahead by a bajillion points. But but still, it's an interesting dynamic. And I think we'll push those big six teams to, you know, work harder too, and not just coast on their piles of money that they've been able to use to stay at the top for so long. Right.
0: Yeah, no, and this happened a few years ago when Leicester City obviously had that insane season where they won with the against credible odds. I think that had a huge impact on the the Man Cities and the Man Uniteds and the Arsenal saying, "Hey, we can't just you know open up the checkbook and expect to run away with it." Which actually we we had every reason to believe we could do that because that's the way it was <laughs> for many years. But yeah. <laughs> all of a sudden, that's not the case.
1: All right. Well, play gets underway tomorrow. We will uh, know right away whether Liverpool has a chance to clinch it this weekend if uh, Arsenal beats uh, Man City, which obviously I'm not rooting for. But Liverpool can wait, all right? (laughs) All right. Well, let's leave this here for now. We'll be back in a moment with our rabbit hole of the week. At 538, we often find ourselves falling down various rabbit holes of data. Some lead to stories, some don't. We end each week's show with one of these descents the hot t- takedown rabbit hole of the week. This week, we are delighted to be joined by Maria Konnikova, author of a forthcoming book on the psychology of playing poker called The Biggest Bluff, how I learned to pay attention, master myself, and win. The book from Penguin Random House will be out next week on June 23rd. Maria, thank you so much for joining us today.
5: Thanks so much for having me, Sarah.
1: So your background is as a psychologist, and you decided to learn to play No Limit Texas Hold'em to better understand how humans think and feel about luck. What makes poker such an ideal way to study that?
5: Well, poker is a game of incomplete information. So what that means is that there is information that I have, there is information that you have, there's information that we have in common, and we all need to make decisions knowing that we don't know everything. Right. Knowing that there are cards that we will never see and also knowing that we have no idea what the cards that are going to still be drawn from the deck are. Um, and I actually got this idea from John von Neumann, who's the father of game theory. And he was a poker player and game, um, game theory was actually inspired by poker. He hated all, all other games. (laughs) He actually thought that chess was a really boring game because (laughs) it's a game of complete information, right? You can see the board. You can see all the pieces. There's always. A right move. If you give me enough computing power, I can tell you exactly what to do. And he's like, yeah, yeah, I get it. Like strategy, all this stuff, strategy, strategy. like people can do that. That's cool. But what he was interested in is human decision-making, strategic decision-making. You know, At the time, this guy was working on the hydrogen bomb. He was part of the Manhattan Project. He's working on some heavy <laughs> in the world. And so he wanted something that would help him um, with that. And so he thought that poker um, was a much better mirror of life because life is also a game of incomplete information. There's no such thing as 100% certainty. That's how I actually became interested in the game. It was through through von Neumann, who by the way was a bad poker
1: player, <laughs> <laughs> but he kept coming <laughs> out. <down. laughs>
2: yeah, that's that's really funny. Uh, now, Maria, in a book that uh, in an excerpt from your book that we have on the site right now, which I would. Obviously encourage all of our listeners to, to read after they get done listening to the podcast. You talk about sort of being aware of both the psychologist part of your brain and also the poker player part of your brain. And, and you sort of, uh, you're aware of all of the fallacies and all of the tricks yeah. that your brain can kind of play. Yet you're, you talk about having to kind of fight them and, and not always winning against that. Do you think it's possible for us to develop kind of an intuitive understanding of probability uh, when we're in the middle of playing poker or one of these other kind of probabilistic games or is are our, our, our brains just hopefully uh are, are hopelessly unable to uh process probability you know when it's happening to us
5: yeah so i actually think that um poker is a really great learning tool for eventually teaching your brain intuitively to understand probabilities so as um when i was getting my phd in psychology I was actually studying this. I was studying decision-making under conditions of risk and uncertainty. And what we find is that human brains are obviously awful at this normally because we learn better from experience than we do from description, from people telling us. So if you tell me, oh, that's a 70% probability, like, I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) You know, if it's happened to me, I'll have this outsized um, impression of how often it happens. If it's never happened to me, I'm like, oh, you know, this isn't something I need to worry about. That's kind of our two modes. And sure, we have a few modes in the middle, but we, it's really, really hard. And Danny Kahneman spent his entire career studying this and showing that, you know, no matter what you do, people just don't sample correctly in life. And so you don't learn that. And he was able to get people to understand it when he had them play games for some period of time, but then it only worked in that context. So poker um, is actually, and I didn't realize this before I started, but it's actually the perfect learning tool for. Being able to get over some of these fallacies, because you are learning from experience. You're actually playing hand after hand after hand. You're sampling correctly. You're sampling hundreds of times, thousands of times if you're playing online poker, because you're you keep experiencing all of these situations. But you actually you need to be aware. You can't just be playing to play because then you're not going to learn, right? You need to have some sort of awareness of of what you're doing. If you don't know the odds, if you don't know the probabilities, if you're just like, I want to call because I want to win this <laughs> pot, you know, I'm going to and you never take the time to actually learn, okay, these are the odds, these are. Then you don't actually understand what you're what that experience feels like. But if you come into it knowing that, I think it's a, such a beautiful tool for debiasing us because over the long term, you actually experience variance. You get to feel viscerally, oh my God, this is what 2% feels like. <laughs> and 2% is actually a lot. Like 2% is huge. <laughs> Give me a 2% edge and I will take it. I'll be like, yes, absolutely. This is wonderful. And and it's it's something that um that I think I could I never actually realized that there was a way to get past a lot of these biases. I'm still not always great, though, at being able to fight everything because you know you get tired, you get emotional, and there's there is a disconnect between knowing what you're supposed to do and actually being able to execute it. Um, those two things don't always go hand in hand because sometimes it's scary. Sometimes there are other factors,
1: and in poker and in life, and, really?
5: in, both, <laughs> in poker and in life, and in both games, in both poker <laughs> and life, if you aren't feeling it people are going to notice that and they're not going to believe you, right? If you try to pull off a big bluff, but you're scared shitless and you're not <laughs> actually, and your heart's not, and you're not committed to it, people are going to, you know, they're going to pick you off.
1: I really, there's a a part in your book um, that I really loved where you talk about people's tells. And I'm, mm-hmm. I'm so fascinated by that because I'm so bad at reading people. Sometimes I think when I'm, <laughs> when I do play poker, which is rare, but I think that I should I might be better off just not trying to read people and instead focus on not giving so much away myself because I wear my emotions all over the place, you know. <laughs> but um, but you recognize assumptions that you were making about people when you yeah. played. What was the most surprising assumption you made that that turned out to cost you money?
5: So there there were a number of them. I mean, one that wasn't actually surprising, but um, that cost me a lot of money was that you know, assuming that all guys who looked a certain way were really aggressive. <laughs> and it's because I swear, it's because I, I played in New Jersey at Borgata and there were lots of Jersey Shore guys who really were aggressive. But the moment I see a tank top on a guy and like bulging biceps that look like, you know, steroid built and tattoos and, you know, shaved heads and all of this the moment, I see that tans. I'm like, Oh my God, you're just gonna, you are the most aggressive person in the world. And a lot of times that was right. And then I went to Monte Carlo and actually was playing against an international player pool. And it cost me a lot of money because all of a sudden I found myself, you know, not actually taking any information about this particular player. But he sits down at the table. I'm like, oh, I know your type. I'm going to thank you. Um, and then obviously... That was not true. Um, and he ended up being the tightest player ever. He almost knocked me out of the tournament. I, I lucked out. This was one of those, um, the variances against you, but somehow you hit the miracle card. But then afterwards, when when he busted, someone turned to me and was like, are you insane? This is one of the tightest players on the circuit. Because he was actually well-known. And I was like, I don't know. <laughs> you know? Um, but, there are, but you do those things all the time, like older men. That was, you know, I always assume that or older women. I always assume that they're going to be kind of more conservative, more straightforward. No, they love to exploit that image (laughs) if they're good. So I think that it's really important to recognize that we all have biases and we all, the moment we see someone, all of these stereotypes are activated in our minds. It's just human nature. I mean, it happens with infants. (laughs) Um, And... What we need to do is actually just realize that, monitor those reactions and counteract them. and fight It happens them. with
1: infants even.
5: Yes, yes. Um, three to five months. I, um, I, it's been a little while since I've read these studies. So somewhere three to five months, they start preferring faces that look like them, look like their parents, oh, wow. um, smiling more. They, they, there are certain characteristics that they like and they actually have the same reactions that people will have later on to faces that are classified as quote-unquote trustworthy or aggressive like they can actually see that they will smile they'll cry it's it's kind of crazy huh, that's
1: so interesting
2: yeah so it's uh, we're we're fighting these things that have been ingrained and programmed into us forever so yeah. that's on the on the like reading people side of things but uh like you talk about in the book there's also I mean, everything is so heavily probabilistic when it comes to the cards. And you even talked to a game designer and a former poker player named Frank Lanz about how there are video games that actually rig probabilities to fall more in line with the the expectations we have about them, which are actually probabilistically incorrect. But um, I I think we've all, you know, if we played any games uh, online, like some of these card games, like Hearthstone or any of these things where you can kind of feel like, Uh, It it reminded me a little of um, when Spotify first came out with like the shuffle feature or whatever, and it was playing repeat songs too much and people were complaining about it. And it was like, well, it's a true random number generator, you're gonna get, you know, repeats every so often, but, uh, uh, you know, people's brains just think that things will change so much and that you won't get repeats uh, and it falls into kind of that hot hand theory and all of that. But do you think it's more satisfying when the games do kind of play into our biases and give us what, we think should happen kind of you know when we're doing the incorrect math or do you think it's better when they ignore them and kind of just play strictly according to the pure odds the way that poker does
5: um i think that um when it comes to actual games i I like the ones that don't pander um so i think that poker it's it's just much more Ultimately, I think it's much more satisfying. In the short term, sure, it might be more satisfying for probability to look like you think it should look. But in the long term, the fact that this is actually helping rid me of some of these biases, helping rid me of those expectations in real life, um, I think that's such a net positive.
1: What do you think people get most wrong when they're thinking about luck in card games or just in games in general?
5: I think that um, people, unless they're Unless they're serious, unless they really kind of have a mindset um, that you know I'm, I'm taking this seriously, I want to learn, I want to improve my game, um, and I think this is true in both games and and in life. Tend to um, conflate the the process and the outcome. So when they're running well, when things are going well, they think I'm a genius, I'm brilliant. You know, they they don't actually t- examine the decision process, and they forget all those times that. They got their money in bad, whether we're talking about poker or real life um, and just lucked out, just made the wrong decision. But somehow, you know, they beat the odds. Right. Maybe they got their money in as a 80 percent dog or 90 percent dog (laughs) and they still. And they still won. And they forget that. They're like, oh, no, no, no. I'm playing perfectly. I'm doing everything well. And when things aren't going well, um, they'll say, oh, I'm running like crap. You know, I'm just, you know, the the other guy's being hit in the face with the deck. It's all these other things. It's not me. I'm not actually responsible for this. And so there's a way to kind of take credit for luck when it's going in your favor and to blame luck when it's going against you. Um, And there's a psychological. There's a psychological term for this. It's internal versus external locus of control. And it was created by Julian Roeder back in the 1950s or 60s. And he, he found that people who have an internal locus of control will take credit and responsibility for things. So you know, they, they control um, things. And so it's internal. People who have an external locus of control, it's the opposite. So they actually will blame external events, but some, but oftentimes people the locus of control will switch. So when it's a good event, we'll have an internal locus. When it's a bad event, we'll have an external locus. And people who are clinically depressed actually have an external locus for good things. They don't take credit for anything. They say, "Oh no, that's not me." Like I have nothing to do with it. You know, I just got lucky, and they don't take credit for the good things either. So there's there are lots of profiles and lots of signatures, and I just find that work absolutely fascinating but if you if you're not serious about improving it's so easy it's such an easy trap to fall into to just blame things blame everything else And we do it all the time. I mean, there's so many studies of group decision-making that are rigged. Um, So you'll get false feedback for the group. And inevitably everyone will say, every single member of the group individually will say, I worked really hard. It's the other group members who are dragging down the group. If you want to improve at poker, it's actually also a really nice way to actually learn how to go through your decision process because we have those numbers. We have those probabilities. We can actually do some analysis and see what the expected value was. You know, did we make the right decision? Um, And then we can see, you know, if our decisions match with the outcomes. And so we can focus on the decision process itself rather than what ended up happening. And that's actually one of the most important things I learned. It's one of the first things that my coach, Eric Seidel, taught me was, I don't give a damn about how the hand ended. Don't even tell me about the ending because that's the wrong thing to focus on. I just care about the decision. I don't care if you won or lost. Yeah,
1: you, the, the 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 actual luck part doesn't matter so much as the what you put into it. That's that's so interesting. Trust the process. Yeah, <laughs> and it's so hard to do. <laughs> exactly. Trust
5: the process and be willing to rethink the process. Right. Know that your process is not. Just immutable, it's not perfect. it's never going to be. You have to keep questioning it, keep being willing to take feedback, take external feedback, and go back and change the process. It's actually so what I did at Columbia um, was have people play stock market games, and I found that people who were really financially savvy and really ha- good at self-control and all these things, when you put them in the stochastic environment, they often didn't take negative feedback. So they had a strategy that worked at the beginning and then we changed some parameters on them and they started losing money and they wouldn't switch their strategy nearly as quickly as people who weren't as confident and didn't really know what they're doing because they would say, no, no, that's just noise. I know my strategy works. I'm really good at this. So I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing. And it took them much longer to realize, wait the environment has totally shifted. <laughs> Whereas people who didn't know what they were doing were like, ooh, I'm losing money, better change. <laughs> better, <No. laughs> better adjust. Um, and so it's the it's a rare and I think wonderful quality to actually, when bad things start happening, to see, is my process still correct? You know, is my thinking still correct? Am I still taking the right variables into account? Or has the environment changed? Have the variables changed? Have the inputs changed? Do I need to revisit it? Sometimes the answer is no. Sometimes you actually your process is still good. And it is noise. But sometimes the answer is yes. And you need to be open to the possibility that the answer is yes. And then you need to be willing to change what you're doing. That's hard, especially the more successful you get, um, the harder I think it is.
1: That's awesome. I Poker has so much to teach us. I just I love it. It's fascinating and so frustrating, <laughs> but so, so interesting too. <laughs> Maria, thank you so much for joining us. This was so interesting. And and again, your book, The Biggest Bluff, it's available oh, a week from today, right? Yep. And listeners, for a sneak peek, please check out the excerpt from Maria's book up on 538.com right now. Thank you so much. Thank you guys so much. That will do it for this week's show. Thank you so much again, Maria, for joining us. We will be back in your feed next Tuesday. If you like what you heard, please subscribe. And if you are subscribed, please rate and review us on your podcast app so that new people can discover the show. You can also email us at podcasts at 538.com to let us know what you think. Our podcast producer is Sarah Shackett. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. And our podcast commissioner is Chad Matlin. For Neil and Jeff, I'm Sarah. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time.